Ben, how are you going uh, on the 3rd of January, 4th of January? Doing very well. Thank you. How, thank you for having me. No, it's uh, wonderful to have some time with you, mate, because it, it really is uh, a tasty time for a tennis fan as we try to forecast the year. But, gee whiz, we, we don't get to um, just stroll into it. There's tournaments left, right and centre to start the year. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, already a pretty eyebrow-raising result last night with uh, Alex Dimonar beating Novak Djokovic, which Djokovic has been to such a foregone conclusion, uh, really, certainly in retrospect, at, at so many years at the Australian Open, of the years I've been covering the sport, certainly. So having any sort of hiccup come his way uh, is cause for some, some pause and potential reconsideration. So that's uh, maybe the biggest story on the men's side, certainly, so far uh, coming out last night. We'll get to Naomi and uh, Brisbane, but I'm really curious because you spend your whole life thinking about this stuff. Um, the ASB Classic, like it's a bit, a bit, a bit of a different, bit of a different ballpark this year, being at 250 and the different rules with the WTA. And we've spoken to Nicholas Lampton plenty about uh, building the field and the, the difficulties with that. Uh, is there too much tennis at this time of year? And for a tournament, a smaller tournament like the ASB Classic. Um, how how do you see it having to fight for survival and its place in the tennis ecosystem in the new year? Yeah, it's been tough. I think that certainly a lot of the rules about two fifties are not going to help Auckland. That's the secret about that on the men's or women's side, really. And there and there's been there's been talk about um, the, the, the the big buzzword in in the sort of tennis circles in the boardrooms these days is premium. Everyone's looking at the Formula One model where it's sort of a maybe a, a bit more than a dozen premium events, but all the top stars go and show there and then become these real sort of events in these big major cities around the world. Uh, and tennis is looking at that and the money that that makes uh, enviously right now and trying to figure out how it can maybe elevate the Masters events, uh, which it currently has the nine of them, the thousand events, into being, along with the Grand Slam, some sort of Formula One-esque circuit. And so there's that that would not help a lot of the you know medium and even like brisbane which is a bigger tournament than, than auckland on the calendar would not be helped by that sort of mindset necessarily so there's a bunch of different forces at play for sure auckland has had a i think it's always punched above its weight uh and maybe that's getting tougher with the rules but certainly having a player like coco golf there this year is still a, a very star attraction having the most marquee uh, most recent rather uh grand slam champion on the women's side uh on at the tournament there that's that's no no small feat so it's not. It's doing a lot better than most 250s are, for sure. It's still one of the strongest in its category, but yeah, things are getting tougher in its category, and it would probably need, who wants to take that next step, would need to probably upgrade to being a 500 somehow, and that would probably require some sort of facility upgrade for them too, so it's a, a bit of a, a tough deck they're dealt. Yeah, exactly. That that comes down to resource, doesn't it, which is just, um, it's quite tough. But look, it's such an important event for New Zealand sport. We love it. I think for a long time, Ben, we have depended on the goodwill of the players, like the, the likes of Carolyn Wozniacki just mm-hmm. you know really enjoying it and coming back and being loyal. And Venus for a long time was like that. And that and that's, means that we get a good field. I mean, uh, Radicanu Svitolina tonight. I don't know many tennis fans that won't be watching that. It's got you know implications for the season to come. So the players themselves, you would speak to a lot of them. How do they feel about that kind of premium Formula One model, or do they still want to be able to pick and choose? And will they continue to do that on loyalty basis? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of sort of conflicting desires in tennis, even just among players that are are not going to be able to coexist and i'm not sure all players really have reckoned with that fully i mean one of the major talking points in tennis that's very popular and it's a nice sort of 
line is that they want more players to be able to make a living playing tennis, right? They want to have more players breaking even and making profits down to, you know, instead of being roughly 100 players, have it be more like 300 players or something like that have to be making profitable careers on the men's women's singles rankings. But you can't do that. And then at the same time, sort of shrink the tour to just be mm. a smaller group of elite events. I mean, those are two very, those are based, those things cannot coexist. Those, those wishes. So there's gonna be some tough decisions we made for sure. Players are going to see how it affects them. Players are all, very self-focused, so it may depend honestly on where they fall in the rankings, how their how their opinions are. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a pretty clear breakdown along those sorts of lines. Uh, but Auckland, to go back to that, I mean, has done a really good job of, like you said, getting players like Svitolina and and Raducanu and being smart about who they're who they're attracting and who they're trying to get to the tournament and trying to get the best possible field. Wozniacki also there as well, obviously. Yeah, Svitolina Wozniacki was one of the marquee matches of the first first week of the year, no doubt, and that that shows some good uh, some good vision by the tournament directors there too make sure that they have the stars who they can get outside of whatever the given ranking is. And especially in women's tennis, the stars, the biggest stars do not always align with the top ranked players. So it's going to be two very different sort of uh, ranking systems, basically star power versus rankings points at any given point. So I think they've done a good job maximizing what they can uh, with the hand they've been dealt. It's, it's a real, it was a real jigsaw puzzle and it was really interesting talking to Nicholas as he was building his, his field and and what he had to do and the kind of you know checking the rankings every day essentially to see which sort of players he could target. Um, I, I this is way off topic, kind of. Well, not really, Ben. I suppose because it's kind of it's in our face all the time. Like Saudi's investment in sport, and I'm just thinking live golf, and I'm thinking yeah. the way that they've just been happy to um, essentially pay overs to have a footprint in the sporting realm. Uh, I know that tennis has been on their agenda as well, and and players have been there, so. I mean, from the funding side of it, is is tennis essentially ripe for the picking for a, a major set of investment from the outside to completely shake the calendar up, or are there ways that the administrators have gamed against that so far? Well, it depends on what kind of money the, the Saudis can pony up for this, basically, is what it comes down to, because there's so much stasis and things almost never change in, in tennis, and the calendar has been pretty rigid in a big-picture sense uh, for, for decades in terms of, you know, obviously the tour starting in Australia and going to the North American uh, Sunshine Double, they call it New Orleans, Miami, then onto the clay courts of Europe and the grass. I mean, that sort of basic cycle has been pretty unbroken for a long time. Uh, the Saudis, though, I mean, they from the early talk is they are targeting something in this time of year, in January, to have basically mm. a, a year ki- a season kicking off uh, 1,000 event in Saudi Arabia, which would obviously uh, be a, a real threat to tournaments in Australia and New Zealand. I mean, that would that, that's something that has Craig Tiley at Tennis Australia, his, his antenna up. And he's been sort of banging a drum for a long time about, about foreign investment uh, or foreign you know, threats possibly uh, endangering the Australian Open, which has largely just been kind of a, a, a ploy by him to get more funding from the Australian government for his tournament. But this is the Saudis, who are now very recently on the radar for tennis, uh, probably represent the most real challenge to, if not the Australian Open itself, at least to be sort of Australian summer, you know, these first couple weeks of January. Mm, that is fascinating, and you can kind of see that that makes sense just by judging on the time of year that they've kind of been involved to this point. Um, ben, you would have been watching a lot of Brisbane because, well, yesterday we had one of the, I guess, <laughs> more interesting uh, days and, I guess, ways to kick off the, the calendar. We, we've seen Naomi Osaka back playing tennis, and <laughs> what a what a return and what a way to to get underway! You've spent a lot of time thinking about her, writing about her. What did you make of uh, Osaka's return to the courts? 
honestly, I thought she was pretty outstanding. It was much better than I expected. I mean, she the stat, she lost that match to Pliskova in her second round match in, in a battle of former number one. It's like another big marquee match early one of these early early year tournaments. Uh, but this battle of former number one, she lost to Pliskova six four in the third. But her her stats were incredible. I think she hit something along the lines of like forty winners and only thirteen unforced errors. Just like ridiculously good, clean tennis for someone who hasn't played a meaningful match in over a year before this week. So she looks really sharp to fit and it looks pretty good. Just some sort of some rust on, on big points. I think that was what it came down to. It was just her, I think she went two for 12 on break points and basically went two for two. So just sort of being sharp at those big moments and simplifying things or being clutch. I think sometimes, I think a lot of players who have lengthy comebacks will say it's one of the slower things to come back. Sort of, that's something else that you can practice on a practice court, you know, playing the big points or break points, things like that. So, I thought overall it was really positive. She seems like she's in a really good place mentally and physically and definitely, you know, putting herself in the conversation for Melbourne, really. She's not someone who anyone will want to face uh, early or, for that matter, late at the Australian Open with, how, with the kind of form she showed early on. From the absolute outside, she has uh, appeared to be a very interesting character with lots of different layers to her for our, from just our vantage point down here as a, a tennis and a sports fan. Why write a book about her? What what was interesting enough about her and her story for you to dedicate what I can only imagine was hundreds of hours to this? Oh, for at least, yeah. No, I think what you just said, there's a lot of layers to her, and she exists in this sort of intersection of all sorts of different parts of, of culture and society and, and sports, obviously. I mean, conversations about her so so quickly extend beyond tennis, and, and she became this very... Uh, talked about very polarizing, very animating figure in, in world culture, uh, in the U.S. and, and in Japan and, and worldwide, certainly, uh, around, you know, various topics she raised, maybe most, most pointedly around the 2021 French Open, where she had her, her moment where she said she wasn't going to do press conferences, and it sparked this whole conversation about mental health and self-care and, and work and obligation and things, and really resonated uh, with athletes around the world and, and just average people around the world as well. So she really has... has transcended the culture in a way that I haven't seen many of any tennis players do, certainly not at this early stage of her career. And then I was, as I was looking into her story, as sort of she gained more notice for her, her voice and things like that. Uh, it's not just the tennis she was playing, which was still excellent for a lot of her career. She, I, I realized how much of her story wasn't really known and hadn't been told. And she had a fascinating early life with her family, uh, you know, being of a mixed race background between Haiti and, and Japan, leaving Japan for the U S to chase this, long shot tennis dream and the Williams sisters model. And, and yeah, the more I sort of found early on, the more I was convinced that a, a book was probably the best way to do her, her story justice. I imagine journalistically, this is, um, it's actually a, a bit of a rare thing these days, a kind of a, you know, we get so many, I call it the, the Michael Jordan sports doc. Um, I guess it, it was the byproduct of the last dance where all of these athletes are executive producers on their own stories. So this is this is done by you about her. I assume she's had to be complicit. And have you had a sit down interview? Has her team been involved at all, or is this really a, a, a old school um, biography? Ben, it's mostly. I mean, it's mostly old school. I mean, she has been her team and, and her agents certainly, and, and her have been cooperative, and they were responsive on you know fact checking questions, things like that that I needed their help on. They were very good about that. And I appreciated that hugely uh, just as a journalist, uh, but it was done independently. And you're right. There has been this shift absolutely towards uh, athletes telling their own stories and kind of bypassing journalists and leagues too. I mean, so many leagues and certainly the ATP tour has their own very yeah, media yeah, arms, yeah, yeah. put out their own articles and, 
and this has coincided with filling a bit of a void that's happened in, certainly in the U.S., and I'm not sure how it is in New Zealand, but uh, a lot of the traditional you know, print newspaper industry has really dried up very quickly in the U.S., and, uh, and so there is a gap there, but it is, does come with a, a lack of you know, capital J journalism for sure, and it's just they're sort of telling what they want you to hear, and it can be a bit propaganda-ish at, at its worst. And so, yeah, and, and Naomi actually is part of that. Naomi has founded her own production company, um, <laughs> association with a production company previously founded by LeBron James, uh, that is related, you know, to her wanting to tell her own story and kind of keep uh, media control. So this is, uh, I guess, a gasp against that that push to still have some journalism and doing independent work, which I've been doing for my whole career and still believe there's a lot of value in. Yes, of course. I mean, as a fellow journalist, I couldn't agree more. But it's just, I just think it's amazing that the access part of it is. Like it's it's a bit behind the curtain stuff, so it's probably a bit of boring for some of our listeners. But man, it's fascinating. Um, you know who gets it, where it comes from, who signs off on it. Uh, just just back to I guess the tennis, which is probably more interesting. I mean, d- does she love tennis? I don't. I, I mean, I've never been able to work this one out. Is is Naomi Osaka like a one of those athletes that is a true gamer and loves her craft, or is it a means to an end, or is it a bit of both? I think it ebbs and flows at times. I think that's something that gets tracked in the book. And it's something even some of her, you know, one of her very early coaches who I went down to Florida and interviewed him uh, was saying, basically he told Naomi that when he, he said he told her this recently, that when she was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, however old she was when she was on his courts at this public park in Florida, that he really did not think that she liked tennis. He was, he did not think that she was enjoying it, did not think she had passion for it. And she just said she disagreed with him, but certainly it's something people have even close up to her have questioned and wondered about and, it has ebbed and flowed, and you know it certainly was at a, a low point in terms of her motivation for the sport uh, in 2022 when she really was sort of receding from the sport meaningfully and stopped entering tournaments. And, and she admitted this week she had been contemplating, you know, retiring at that point or stopping playing because uh, she didn't feel that drive for it. It's actually this pregnancy that she had shortly after that that has uh, unexpectedly really reinvigorated something in her and given her this new sense of motivation and purpose, which is uh, very essential to keeping a, a tennis career going. Mm, uh, it's, it's really curious. I, like, I think this will be a great read because um, she's definitely a character that you'd want to know more about and feels, going back to my first thought, like it, she really does sound like she's got a lot of layers to her. It's really interesting stuff, Ben, and I guess this time of year you're, you're trying to keep up with all the tennis, you're looking at the Australian Open. Could you give us one to follow, one for our listeners, like a, a player that you are curious about for one reason or another, it doesn't necessarily have to be for on-court performance, but a storyline or a story arc. Is there something that you're just, you know, your, your spidey senses are going off uh, on the 4th of January about? Yeah. Well, I think, I think Naomi technically counts as that because she's a bit of a wild card, literally and figuratively sure. at this point in her career, but other players who come to mind would be, uh, on the men's side, he didn't have a great start to the, the season. He lost first round in, in Brisbane, I believe. But Sebastian Corda is one on the, on the American side, uh, who's the son of Peter Corda, who won the, the Australian Open in the late 90s. Uh, he's someone who I think people are really getting anxious to make a final big push. He's been never been inside the top 20, but he's been someone who's been touted as sort of the next big thing in America. He's just had various little injuries and such. And he was actually in an Australian Open quarterfinal last year when he picked up one of his first injuries of the year and it held match point against Djokovic, I think the week before that, or the term before that rather in uh, Adelaide. So he's someone who there's a lot of whispers about and also sort of, you know, impatience uh, maybe at times, just hoping that he can finally make good on his, his potential on some level there. Um, that might be my pick on the men's side. And on the women's side, I mean, there's just so many, I mean, like so many of the players who are, are household names 
are kind of in these odd spots in the rankings. Like you mentioned Radu Kanu earlier, like what she can, what if she can or can't, you know, get her career back to where it looked like it might be going after that U.S. Open title, which was so out of nowhere and so such an outlier from what people thought her trajectory might be, um, that it kind of really has been a burden for her to live up to that, that performance ever since in a lot of ways. Um, seeing what she might do, th- these things also, you know, Raducanu and, and Osaka, their results relate back to what we were saying earlier a bit about the sort of business fortunes in the sport, you know, having these, these big names, the, the top players is important for the business of the sport too. So there's a lot of people in, you know, WTA, uh, boardrooms or balance sheets who are who are really hoping that you know some of these players these big stars Yadbosniaki to that as well who is also in, in Auckland that they, they can deliver uh, some of these big results that to help buoy the financial uh, futures of the sport. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. That sounds like something Aaron Rodgers would get all conspiratorial about. To be fair, but um, I 100 percent know. I 100 percent know. He... Conspiratorial about. Yeah, well, that's right. He's take, tried to take on Jimmy Kimmel, so who knows who he, what he's willing to do. Um, ben, it's been wonderful to chat, and you're so right. Like, I, I hope, I hope selfishly for New Zealand's sake, but I look at today. Like, we've got Petra Martic, we've got Coco Goff, we've got Radicanu Svitolina all on the same court, you know, one after another in Auckland here. Sure, it's a 250, but I hope, and we've had texts come through straight away that these smaller tournaments can still have room to survive because they do add a dynamic and um, it's important, isn't it? So great to chat. Uh, good luck with the book. I'm sure people can go to your Twitter. Is that the easiest way to find out where to get a copy if they're interested? Yeah, certainly for New Zealand, it's on sale on January 9th there. So it's one of the markets where it's coming out on the same day. And yes, yeah, anywhere you get your books, big or small, uh, should have it available to pre-order at this point. Uh, and yeah, and, sh- and it'll be hopefully on shelves on the 9th. Not too far away. Uh, good luck, man. Congratulations. That's a, a really good body of work you've put in there. So all, all the best, and hopefully we talk again soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.